Welcome to the Property Developers and Investors podcast, where we explore the detail of what it really takes to achieve great success in the business of property developments and investments. Now let's get into this week's episode. And a very warm welcome to the planning podcast. Nigel Green here from the Equa Academy. And I have with me here today my podcast partner, Mr. David Kemp from DRK Planning. Hi, David. Morning, Nigel. How are you? I am very well, thank you. And looking forward to uh, what is episode two, which is a very exciting uh, place to be. We've got uh, five episodes to get through. And, um, you know, hopefully the listeners are enjoying the journey thus far. But uh, this particular one... um, We've titled the journey through the planning process, and really, it's, um, it's going to be a series, and hopefully, it gives it gives the listeners that that hand held, uh, holding all the way through the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we can certainly fill in a few gaps as we go along, can't we? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it could have taken any number of titles, like the Odyssey. Or- <laughs> feels like like something homerian and and epic isn't it it's like the planning process absolutely all sorts of obstacles and challenges but um hopefully the rewards at the end of it are worth it absolutely Um, yeah absolutely and we you know we talked about that in the last episode the you know the value staircase and yes that's right by just you know putting a piece of paper if you like simplifying it can add so much value i mean it's just incredible Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So okay. So all right. So let, let, let's start the journey then. So we let's say I've, I've you know I'm, I'm looking at a particular development and I, I think it could really work. You know, maybe it's sure. a commercial building, but maybe we need to convert it into something else. But I'm not actually too sure mm. what, the, what the planning history is, or even indeed what the current planning status is. Mm. Mm. How, how would I how would I find that information? Um, well, it's a little bit uh, tricky with um, with some sites because they store things in different places. Um, but let's take, for instance, a situation where you've got a commercial building and you want to convert it to residential and you're looking for PD rights. So the first thing we'll always do is um, uh, we'll um, make sure that we're looking at the right building in the right place um, and we know exactly where the red line is. Um, so some agents details, for instance, you look at these things on, on the market, they don't always show what the red line is. They don't always show exactly what the extent is. And that can be quite important because when you're looking at some article four directions and the maps, um, then they can be actually quite close to where the property is. And so you've got to understand whether or not you're on that side of the street, which is just outside or that side of the street, which is just inside. Um, so you have to go to the local authorities' uh, website. Um, there's usually, within the planning section, there's usually something either on permitted development. There's different tabs. There's something either on permitted development or how to make an application or um, um, sort of Article 4 directions generally. In any event, there's usually like a little search bar, an internal search bar, not the Google search bar, but the internal search bar to the website, just put in Article 4 directions, it usually comes up with Article 4 directions. Um, and the next thing is that we'll look at is the council's map as well. And so the map might be just a PDF document or it might be an interactive map. So again, you can check on, on that. 
And also, if you go to the planning history of a particular site, then um, sometimes when it brings up a recent planning decision, there might be a constraints tab and it might list the constraints to that particular site or that particular area as well. There might even have been a recent planning decision or even a prior approval application or something like that. We can go into that, check whether or not there's been an officer's report, and the officer's report will set out more detail as well. Um, so, you know, though that's, that's the principal way of looking at it. Then there are perhaps a bunch of other sites that we'll look at afterwards. We we'll usually check the business rates to see how the business rates describe it and which parts are described within the business rates listing. It's quite important if you're looking to include the upper floors within your class MA application, because if the upper floors are not part of the business rates listing, yeah. that would tend to indicate that it's actually not part of the shop use. And it might be a separate use. Um, not conclusive, but it, you know, it's indicative. Uh, flood risk, we'll check. If it's in London, we'll check the uh, uh, TFL website for its PTAL index, its um, public transport accessibility level. Um, and also listed buildings. So go onto the Historic England website and check that as well. Uh, so those are probably the main portals. I mean, I did that. We got an inquiry through this morning from somebody who's just put a building under offer. And um, that's uh, that's something that I checked within, took me about half an hour. Okay. But for the uninitiated, it might take, you know, two or three times that long. Don't know. Um, you've got to be careful with some of these maps as well, not just the local plan map, but the particularly Article 4 map. Some of them are in very poor resolution. Um, and if you're not absolutely sure, belt and braces where the red lines are, yep. then ask the planning team to send you a high resolution map. Yeah, absolutely. So, so just to get to kind of the starting point, there's quite a bit of background. <clears throat> excuse me, background. Mm. Yeah. To understand yeah. that target property, what its current use class is, maybe planning history, etc. Yeah, et exactly. It's exactly. All public yeah. information. It's just knowing where to. to That's right. Detail. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really useful. Spot on. Okay, so so we've done that piece of work, which is really useful and a, and a good start. But you know what we want to do is change it to something else, mm. and you know we might want to change it physically. We w- might want to change it from a use perspective, mm. or actually, we might want to do both. Um, you know what? What do I do now? You know, who's out there to help me in the next steps? Well, you really, I mean, you can either go to an architect or you can go to a planning consultant. Um, it's usually best to go to a planning consultant first. Of course, I would say that because I'm a planning consultant. Um, but, um, that's not at the, um, exclusion of working with architects. You see, logically, when you're looking at a site and what you can do with it, you always look through the permitted development position first or prior approval position. There may not be a PD position either because it, it's just not congruent with the nature of your proposals or, um, Article 4 directions have already come into force locally, and therefore what you may have been able to do under PD before has now been taken away from you and withdrawn. But as planning consultants, we probably spend a little bit more time, probably a lot more time in our training, our professional training and background is a lot more geared and aligned towards uh, looking at lawful use, the permitted development position, the prior approval position. Um, a number of reasons, a number of things around that. First of all, a lot of it's statute based. An architect, uh, 
um, you know, it's best to stop them looking online and looking at these things, but they don't necessarily look at the minutiae of what's required in the way that as planners we do. I think the mindset of architects, generally speaking, I don't say this about all architects, but they're also very focused on the design, the end product, how it will look. Um, they're not necessarily so focused on the process. They're good at process when it comes to the development management side, but um, we have a, we've been involved in a lot of instructions down the years where the architects put everything into it in terms of the design. They might have missed a few things in terms of other contributions, community infrastructure, environmental contributions, Section 106 that's got to be paid. Um, and they put the application in and they pretty much then not chased it up or not followed it through. And sometimes they just get refused. And some of the, a lot of applications can get granted just because you follow them up. It's a bit like, you know, when you're looking for sites, mm. you know, the magic is in the follow up, isn't it? So yeah. it's the same for planning in that process mm. because like looking for sites, a lot of it is geared to sort of the human endeavor side. Once you've, made the initial contact, you've got to follow it up. Um, and so, you know, those are, those are probably the main reasons. So I said, you know, when we get involved as a planning consultant, we then, we might bring in an architect um, or encourage the client to bring in their architect to work alongside us, you know, in terms of the design. So you've got that, that uh, sort of uh, three state, that three pronged approach between the client telling us what works viably, what works in the local market using their local knowledge. The architect saying, you know, this is what I can feasibly fit on site. And the planning consultant <laughs> saying, this is what will work. And these are what the costs are. And this is the yeah. procedure and the yeah. time and cost. So I think, you know, you can go to either or, but we are a lot more process driven uh, about the whole process. And also we get a lot of people, a lot of architects coming to us because they they don't really want to get involved in the planning side of it. They don't really like the procedure side of it. Mm. Um, and also, they actually value the strategic insight that planning consultants can get. And, you know, I would say it's a bit like that for us when we get into areas which are probably very legal, mm. um, and we'll go to a planning barrister. Um, I was trained as a planning barrister. I have actually had court experience as an advocate as well. Yep. But unless you're on your feet every day doing it, unless you're at your desk every day doing MA applications and all the and, and all the rest of it, yeah, it doesn't really sharpen up the tools in your box. You can read about this stuff. You can go on courses and all that sort of stuff. But there's nothing that's there's nothing. There's no substitute for actual practice. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I think that's um so come yeah. to a planning consultant and then we'll yeah. help put the strategy together and advise you who needs to be involved at various times. Yeah, yeah, that that's certainly my experience as well. The I think it's horses for courses. You know, it's it's never never to say um, you know, architects or that that skill set cannot do because it absolutely can. And yeah, yeah. In many cases. And, we, and we're not here to tread on the relationship that an no, architect's no. built no. up with with a client. You know, we're hugely sensitive to that. Absolutely. I think it's just building your um, <clears throat> your chances, you know, of securing That's it. That, yeah. that golden opportunity, which is that piece of paper. Because, you know, the value staircase is the bit that 
creates the value and and you know that my my personal experience of the relationship between a planning consultant and architect has, has been excellent and you know what I've taken out of it is is you you mentioned strategy I think right. that's a real key part of it sometimes it's it's not appropriate to just go in and just put a full application for the whole development that you're looking for right. sometimes yeah. Sometimes you might want to kind of just approach it from a point of view of just winning the war and getting change of use. Yes. And once you've got change of use, then going for something slightly bigger because you've won the biggest part of it, which is changing it from X to Y, you know, yes. and, and it's enhancing that. So that's where I've seen the yeah. power of a planning consultant working strategically with an architect and the professional team. As incredible. Yeah, and also, you know, touching on what you said there, it gives you a piece of paper that's also um, that you can then use to refinance as well. You can go back to the bank and say, right, okay, the uh, the value of the site has increased, and if you know, if, for instance, if they're working off a a ratio of sixty five percent loan to value, you've increased the value, so you now can increase the loan level, um, which. If you know if you're comfortable doing that and the finances work out for that as well, uh, which is a question in itself, but um, it just means that therefore you're no you're not so rushed or panicked into what you have to accept from the planners when you go in there because planning does take time and it is a negotiation. Um, and if you're rushed, then you're likely to then accept the first thing that they tell you that they that they will accept. Um, Rather than to eke out increments of increased value in that, um, and where you can eke out those inc- increased va- increased increments of value, that's where you work at the margins as well. Because when you look at the deal stack as well, wh- in working at the margins is often so important for the developer because their take from the deal stack might be locked away in the last few points of the margins. Absolutely. So yeah. wherever you can. You know, you can work that. You know, that helps with the developer's return. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a there's a little process called pre-application. Mm, you, yeah, you might have heard of it. You know, and <laughs> yes. It's, <laughs> and it's it's an it's an interesting concept, isn't it? And it's where you can, you know, not only get your power team, i.e., your planning consultant, working strategically with your architect, but have a third leg of the stool, which is the local authority. Having a a view on the proposals, the concepts, and providing feedback. Yes. So yeah. What, what's your experience with pre-apps? Oh, they can be varied, but it's um, it sort of follows the principle: rubbish in, rubbish out. And they're only as good as what you put into these processes in the first place. Mm. Um, they are very, very useful from our point of view because we deal with uh, with instructions and developments all over England. Uh, and so I'm often asked, um, what's the value of having a planning consultant or an architect who's based locally? Um, it can be of, of great importance because, you know, we'll often work with architects who are based locally. In some cases, we'll come in and provide a second opinion, uh, as, you know, a more national expert to somebody who's already engaged in architects and possibly also a local planning consultant. Um, but, um, our experience is, is is quite niche in in that respect anyway, but I think that the importance of being based locally and having that local relationship with officers is not necessarily so important if you're using preapp because if you use preapp and you 
have that way of building up a relationship with officers. We, I mean, the, the, one of the biggest schemes that we dealt with um, was about 120 units in Rushmore Borough Council or Farnborough. Uh, and it was all full application. It was all very, very complex. There was affordable housing. There were SANG negotiations and all the rest of it. And that was a pre-app. And as a pre-app, Rushmore Borough Council run their pre-apps as pretty much complete planning applications. It's a full dry run. There are reasons behind that, which I'm not going to go into on the podcast. But I think that from that point of view, as somebody who had never done a job in Rushmore Borough Council before, by the end of that process, and by the time we came to the full application, I built up a very good relationship with the principal planning officer who was leading on that application. Yeah. Um, so it really does help. There are, you know, there are always going to be exceptions when people don't feel as if they're getting the best out of a, a pre-application. Mm-hmm. And I, I've lost count of the number of times that people have come up to me and said, oh, "I'm not going to bother with a planning application. It's a waste of time." I've done one previously on another site. And it was a waste of time. Well, I can't speak to those situations. And I bet you, I bet you, I'll put any money on it. Once you start doing a deep dive into what they did and how they did it and put it together and the quality of it, no matter what they say to you face to face, you'll realize, well, I can understand why it was all a bit, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, a bit disappointing. <laughs> yes. I was going to use a different term, <laughs> different term, Your Honor. Um, but, um, I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> I think most of the time it's, it's, it's to be encouraged. And also there's an element, I have to say, and particularly in London, of mm. being seen to play the game. They want some yeah. fees. They mm. also, they also appreciate you coming to them and working with them on a scheme. They like to be able to shape a scheme rather than developers saying, right, this is what we do. This is what we want to do. This is what it is. Give us planning for it. This is a little bit arrogant, quite frankly. And sometimes you've got to work with people. Yeah, definitely. And I can see with that pre-app process how now the scheme is familiar. So when yes. the full application goes in and and to boot, let's say mm. that the full application has gone in and some of the advice or suggestions that they've put forward in the pre-app have been incorporated into the yeah. app. This, yeah. is, this is a whole better place, isn't it? The other thing is, the other thing is that you can do a pre-app without the existing owner knowing about it because it's confidential. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really good way to road test proposals. If, for instance, you're in a position where you've got an option or a lockout agreement, mm-hmm. so the structure of your deal needs to fit in with that if you want to do it in a way to manage your risk before an exchange of completion. Yeah. Um, and that might not also necessarily all be the case because you know before we jumped online, we were talking about you know the deal that we're working on at the moment and you know, how you're being pushed towards unconditional deals by a lot of yeah. vendors at the moment and a lot of agents. But I think it's really important. And if, if for instance, we place ourselves out of the context of planning for a moment, just so that our, can, our listeners can really understand it, because our listeners are not planners, they're developers, but they'll be used to testing the numbers. They'll be used to doing a sensitivity analysis, which is absolutely important for running a, a thorough DD on your numbers. So think of pre-application as a sensitivity analysis on planning, which is one of the major cogs in your development wheel. And managing the relationship with your investors as a result, because then you can go back to your investors or to the bank and say, okay, well, we may need to look at our strategy or our expectations. 
yep. all the finances in this deal. And it's yep. better to have those conversations earlier rather than later on because when it gives people more time to adjust and to pivot and that sort of yep. thing as well. And people tend to be more flexible and pliable if you raise it early enough yep. and it looks more competent and more Absolutely. professional. So it's really important, I think, sometimes not to be too dismissive about pre-applications. They're so useful for a number of reasons. Very much so. Very much so. And you know, you know this pre-application, it's going to be submitted, let's say, this Friday. What what constituent parts would it have in it? What what typically will go into it? Well, there's not a there's not a hardcore validation list like there is within application. So whenever you're making a serious application, whether lots of prior approval, permitted development, full application, outline application. There is a validation checklist, which you all should always check online. Um, you don't have to stick rigidly, by the way, to that validation checklist. Because one of the schemes that we're involved in at the moment is getting planning permission for a huge infrastructure pipeline about 23 kilometres around the London borough of Enfield for district heat network. Yeah. And there are so many aspects of their checklist which does not fit within a project like that. So there is a uh, a notice that you can complete. It's called an Article 12 notice, and it simply says the following aspects of the checklist we do not have to comply with for the following reasons. So if you've done that, you're okay. With a pre-application, there will be a certain number of minimum requirements that officers would like to see because it helps them to understand the scheme. It's got to be in your interest to provide them. So I would usually provide always site location plan, shows Mm -hmm. the red outline. Uh, I show photos if I can on the site, even if it's a street view. If yeah. it's a knockdown and rebuild, or it's going to change of use, uh, and especially if it's not a listed building, it's not so important to show the interior. You need to show context. You want ideally um, existing and proposed floor plans, elevations, um, sections, um, and um, they don't necessarily need to be. Absolutely, absolutely spot on in terms of their calculations. I've seen uh, drafts go in sometimes or sketches go in, which are quite useful. The problem with that is that um, officers will be looking at uh, the space standards and they'll be looking at distances between buildings as well. So if it looks too sketchy, um, there are a lot of questions then going to be hanging over that advice. And so all you'll get is a regurgitation of policy, which any planning consultant could have given you. You're there to get an opinion. You're there to try and get some certainty out of officers. Yeah. Um, uh, a covering letter or planning statement. Sometimes also we get something in from the architects, to, um, like a, a draft design and access statement to convey the um, the concept of the scheme to yep. sell the sizzle. Mm. Definitely. They're good at selling the sizzle. I uh, wouldn't necessarily do... I mean, you might have daylight and sunlight consultant look at things mm-hmm. at a high level, but not necessarily a report. Yeah. Might put in a transport note as well, not a full-on transport statement. So something that just briefly cover, covers points about um, how close it is to public transport and parking requirements in the area. Yeah. Um, and then probably not as not very much more than that. Quite yeah. frankly, yeah, yeah. Might be a little little check you add in there as well for them, but uh, yeah, sure you got to, yeah, you got, yeah, you got to pay, you got to pay them a bit of money. I think yeah. also that what happens is sometimes some local authorities do run a fast track process as well, okay. um, but that's a lot of that is resource driven at the moment. Yeah. Um, uh, so, for instance, we've had experience with the London Borough of Barnet recently, mm. uh, and they can run a fast track process, but uh, they suspended it recently. Yeah, yeah. Just didn't have the resources. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I suppose there's there's an application form as well, but as you say, it's probably in a short form. It's just short form. Sometimes it's just send an email through and yeah, gets registered. Sometimes it's got to be loaded onto the council's through, through the council's website. Yeah. So you don't send it through email. You don't complete a form, mm. but you've you're basically filling in uh, some forms online, and then you load up your documents as well, which can yeah. always be fun technically. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. With yes. the IT, very frustrating. <laughs> so, okay, so we, we've submitted the, the pre-app, which is really useful. Um, yeah. You know, we what sort what sort of timescales? I mean, this is probably how long's a piece of string in some cases. Well, I usually allow something between six to eight weeks on six it. Again, weeks. you've got to chase these things up when they go when it goes in. You should expect to see a confirmation that it's been submitted, either mm. electronically, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then within a week, you want to be emailing the admin team saying, can you confirm you've got it? Yeah. Who's the case officer? You know, maybe the, the following week, who's the case officer? Has it been validated yet, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Since you've got the case officer's details, I, I am I am representing. Um, uh, hope you're well. And um, when can we expect to get a diary, uh, uh, an appointment in the diary for a site visit, if that's what you paid for? Because mm-hmm. uh, there will be different different tiers of fees for the kind of advice you want. Um, and by the way, if your application is very small, mm-hmm. you might not be able to get their, their tier of fees might not include a site visit or might not include an initial meeting, yes. that sort of stuff. So, you know, roughly about six to eight weeks, but as I say, there's various yeah. obvious administrative stages, contact mm-hmm. points, mm-hmm. which, you know, help to build that relationship up and, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And contact yeah. relationship. I mean, we can never, we can never confirm this or otherwise. But um, mm. I'd like to think that if you if you're getting a good rapport with the officer, that your application may move up the in tray a little bit faster. Who's to say? Yeah, yeah, it can help as well. But quite often, um, officers go AWOL on you, and you know you you get the silent treatment. And, you know, after you know a couple of tries, maybe a couple of weeks, you start then thinking, well, I'm. Um, because um, it's always a bit of a worry as to whether or not you it's appropriate to go over somebody's head on an application and go to their team leader. But it's quite okay, you know. You you know you you drop a, an email to the team leader. You copy in the mm. uh, the case officer and say, um, you know, you you can be very charitable about it. You know, hope so and so is well. Haven't heard from them. Sent them a few emails. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming that they're off sick, um, but. Um, was wondering if you could pick this up and um, yeah, uh, and chase this up for us so that you know we can get it going. Yeah, absolutely. We think it's and, a great scheme, etc., and so on and so forth. Yeah, so just, have yeah, just keep so, elaborating yeah. on that. That's yeah. the way to do it, isn't it? Just yeah, yeah. avoid the hostility and just be pleasant and nice and uh, absolutely. You know, oh just, yes, oh yeah, because it's just like working in any normal office. If they if they're dealing with um, arrogant sods half the time, you know that will. Those people will get a name. Oh, yeah. They will go to the bottom of the part. I mean, the officers have a million and one ways to mess with your life. They really oh, do. Oh, 100%. Yeah, you want you to be <laughs> your application up. Oh, the dark arts of being oh, a planning officer. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, we, so we've got, we've now got a response back, which is fantastic. Um, David, can we rely on it? Uh, not entirely. There have been times when, for instance, I've been given a bum steer by officers. That's not a technical planning term, by the way. Um, yeah. But um, 
I had one particular situation where an officer signed off advice and say everything's going to be okay in terms of amenity and so on and so forth. And then we put in the application and they raised problems that they'd said were entirely fine and there had been no change in the scheme in that respect. Yeah. Um, what happened was then, um, actually, I turned that around and used it to our effect mm-hmm. um, by contacting the head of development control complaining about the service that had been provided. We got the pre-application money back and the head of development control gave us direct advice on those particular points and assured us um, if we copied her in that uh, they would give it more priority going forward. So, you know, you can always turn a negative into a positive in these sorts of situations, but the officers can't be bound by pre-application advice, but it's going to look very... um, from a political point of view and from an administrative point of view, they obviously, it's not in their interest or anybody's interest to give you misleading advice or wrong advice. Exactly. But you've got to bear in mind that it's a political process. And once your, once your proposals go in, first mm-hmm. of all, they may not be fully formed in the pre-application. So there's all sorts of wiggle room afterwards. And officers say, well, it was caveated subject to A, B, and C. But now we've seen A, B, and C. We don't like B. C's okay and A's okay, but B's the problem. Uh, and then so you get stakeholders like third party, um, uh, third party representatives. You get residents association, conservation immunity advisory groups. You get ward councillors involved. You get every the world and their wife getting involved in an application once it goes in. Other statutory consultees as well, who the council perhaps or the officers didn't consult with on the pre-application. Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's really interesting. So we, we've, we've got that application through. It's all all very positive. I mean, there's always the question of what do we do next? But mm. I think we've we've spoke about, you know, how how that dynamic of a planning consultant and architect can work together. But mm. I think moreover that the planning consultant can look at the scheme from a strategic perspective. Mm. Is it going to be a, you know, we're just going to go in on the, the full fat version and and see if we can secure as well as ticking the boxes yep. to making sure that it complies with planning policy yeah uh and sometimes you'll have that moment where for instance the planning consultant says um you really need to do it this way or you need to do it that way and the officers uh, and the client says well um we can't do it this way or we prefer to do it this way from a finance or practical point of view or it rubs up alongside the advice that they're getting from the structural engineer or the builder, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, as a team, you need to um, look at what's the what the optimum scheme is that's that it. works. The yeah. optimum scheme is not necessarily the best planning scheme mm-hmm. or the most compliant planning scheme. And it might be that you don't strict you don't um, strictly comply with all the planning policy points. But it's our job as a planning consultant to tease those points out to the client and the, and the team. And to work with the clients and the team to find ways in which either we could bring it closer to compliance, or if there's a hard stop, what that hard stop is and what the practical reason is, and therefore to put that as a client's case across to the planning officer so they understand why, if the officers then to come back and say, well, um, you don't fully comply, they understand that we have tried, we've looked at it, yep. but all sorts of reasons um we can't go any further yeah yeah no, no i get it absolutely mm. i mean in episode one we we talked about you know the nitty-gritty and the components that sit within a full application form and you know it's probably yeah. worth not 
going over that again, but you know, the, the kind of things, um, you know, the, the sunlight, daylight, the flood risk highways, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, you know, mm. just building that stack, but, you know, taking advice and just be, mm. be aware of that. You do need to get those reports yeah. finalized. Um, and then, you know, when the, um, when the pack is finished, um, you know, that pack, you know, are you finding different ways of submitting the pack? Is it all online? Is it sometimes it's by post or dropping it off? Or, no, or, no, all, all over the planning portal. Yeah. All, all over the yeah, planning portal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you would do that for a client? You would do that? On yes, that? we would do. Yeah, yeah. If we're instructed as a planning consultant, yeah, do it. And sometimes our fee agreements are done in a way that the client's got a budget where they prefer the it might be more economical for the architect or somebody else to submit yeah. the application, do the administrative work where we're doing most of the advisory work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we've, we've spoke about submission, albeit at uh, the preamp level, and we've, we've talked about registration and notification and that the importance of kind of not going too soon, but the appropriate time to start chasing. Yeah. To, yeah. to get your, your application at the top of that intray, I think is really yeah. Really, really important. If you just go radio silent, well, they'll they'll just do it when they do it. When they, they yes, gonna... it's not important to them. <laughs> They're right. not chasing us, so we'll do it later. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So all, all these things are kind of the dynamics of uh, you know this yeah. application. But I, I suppose a you know key important one is the officers will engage at some point. They'll have yes. questions. They'll provide feedback. Um, they probably will want to have a site visit as well, potentially. You know, yes. and, yeah. Do you, do you find that's just they're just picking up the phone or emailing you and then it's it's arranged? Well, cer- certainly on a pre-app, yep. they don't bother with with site visits half the time. Uh, you're lucky if you can get an officer down on site. Um, I'm counting on the fingers of one hand in the last five years if I've done a site visit, although under the last five years, part of that time we were in COVID, so they wouldn't yeah. have done it for safety reasons yep. anyway. But more often than not, they were done done with site visits before everybody started working remotely. Now everybody's working remotely. They don't want to get out the gym jams. So, um, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit irritating because being on site, there's a different dynamic. You're face to face with them. You can be a little bit demonstrative. They can see, you get a better feel for the area as well. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I'd love to get them on site a lot of the time, but I think also it's a way of them managing their workloads. I'm being a bit glib about them, about the Jim Jams comment, but I think that, um, I, th- I think that's, I think a lot of it is driven by the workload that officers are under. Yeah. And it does take time to go out on, on, on site. But we have that ourselves. I'm sure you do as well. And anybody does. You know, you've got to allow an hour to get most places, an hour back, and you've got an hour on site. And then perhaps if you're on site with the officer for an hour, you've got to allow an extra time, maybe if we're up to an hour with the client or the consultant's team and and that sort of stuff. So these things do get drawn out. And, um, you know, where they've got a heavy workload, they've got to manage all of that as well. So maybe it's just their way of saying, well, we could learn a little bit more from being on site, yeah. Um, but that's up to the uh, up to the applicant to convey that little bit extra to us through the application. And oh. you know, we'll take that into account, but we'll kick the whole site visit business down the road later yeah. when yeah. we come forward with a serious I think application. If you can get a site visit, I 
think it, as you say, it, it, it creates a different dimension to the, mm, mm. the application and their understanding of the site and how it works. And yeah, absolutely. Maybe the, the concept behind the strategy as well. Yeah. So it, it really is helpful. And I think it actually supercharges the relationship with the officer. Yeah, I agree. I you agree. Know, yeah. Or um, just phoning and, you know, it, it still works. Don't get me wrong. It'll still work, you know, having to chat with them and emailing. Yeah. And it's all it's all very proactive, but I mean, in, in my role in our development businesses, London acquisition, you know, I I love the site visits because it's that one to one, and you yeah, you talk about the site, but you kind of meander off into the weather and family and what you're doing at the weekend as well. So you, you yeah, have, it's not just it's not just about getting out of the office and getting and getting away from cabin fever. It's also about getting a better appreciation of the atmosphere around a site. So often sites will look so different on paper or even on Google Street View or on satellite view to, you know, how they feel when you actually get there. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, I was looking at quite a big site for a client in Chesham and Buckinghamshire. Mm. And the site itself looked absolutely brilliant. You know, nice big site, lots of flexible units on there, opportunity for conversion to residential absolutely spot on but it wasn't until you drove there that you realized um that perhaps its location wasn't as great as possible you know you sort of uh, it was really really tucked away you felt as if you were and a lot of it had to do with the topography of the local area mm-hmm. you're sort of going up and down and sort of round the dales and all the rest of it and you just felt to yourself um it felt a little bit remote and a little bit out on the edge um, and there didn't seem to be any local shops or things like that. So all these sorts of things, don't you, that you pick up on yeah. when you're on site, you're in the area, you can't just pick up on on paper. Um, and as you say, and then also if you're doing it, doing that with other people in the team, it's those relationships because you've got to work together towards a common goal at the end. It's, it's, a, re- it's a real key point you make there. You know? I think from a developer's perspective or anybody's perspective, I, I think – the the look and feel and that first emotion you get with that property, yeah, you know, yeah. Oh, it's lovely, you know, because it's not just oh, it's lovely, as you say, it's the location. Is it on a busy road? Is there a nightclub across the road? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Who's to say, you know? And and I think it's it's a real important part of the entire journey of a development because you know, from a developer's perspective, you know, they're, they're going to bring the bank along at some point. You know, they're they're obviously planning officers ultimately all the way through to exit, which could be another bank or it could be selling to the general public. Yeah. So that first impression is so important. And and gathering and garnering the, you know, the feedback from officers around that point, I think. Is a, can I, is can a I just segue point. on that point? I know that, you know, we're sometimes a bit time limited with these sorts of things, but I just want to raise something that I learned and appreciated more and more the more experienced I got and the the higher I went in terms of the the caliber of the client that I was working with as well, we're working in a business where people talk about due diligence, where people talking about investigations, and try and appreciate a forensic approach to things. Yeah, looking at the metrics, looking at the square meterage, looking at uh, the GDV and the build costs, and trying to be as definite as possible. Um, and aside from the fact that sometimes there is a false comfort in numbers, um, you know, we see through it, through the valuation process itself, that valuation is often described as an art 
not a science is only as good as the the numbers that you're putting in. But it struck me on, it was actually one of the biggest deals that I did on the side as a sourcer. And I was talking to a client who was sending the building to, they built the build, they bought the building for about 6 million in the end. And I split sourcing fee with somebody else. Nice little earner. But um, you started using the phrase quite a lot. Um, I'm either feeling it or I'm not feeling it. And I just thought, what are you talking about emotions for? Mm-hmm. This is a hard-nosed businessman trying to be objective about a financial deal. You know, you often we often talk about don't fall in love with the property, fall in love with the deal. You know, because, you know, so often we get sort of get our minds locked into, oh, that's a great-looking building. We could do great things with that. Yeah. Um, and we should buy that building. Um, and then the numbers don't stack, but you just feel you said you've got a sense of inertia. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. And you fall in love with the property, and that's when people like you and Mark then have to fish people people out the the deep after us because they've just <laughs> sold their shirts on on try and buy a building which they've fallen in love with, and they've fallen in love with the concept, but not the deal. They didn't fall in love with the numbers. So you think to yourself, the numbers are so important here. But so what are you talking about feeling it for? Now you touched a moment ago on the same concept. So, you know, you're not feeling it. And, that's it. and it's something that I think a lot of developers and SME developers included do, but they're not necessarily conscious about. And I just wanted to just bubble this one to the surface a little bit mm-hmm. because it's a bit like the same with planning consultants. You can learn a lot of stuff about policy, but once you actually dig into policy, one of the you you sense the subjectivity in policy, and like there's a subjectivity in numbers in a deal, and to a certain extent we call it planning judgment. Don't know what you would probably call it in terms of a deal, in terms of as a developer, but it touches on the same thing. Do I? What's my instinct towards this? What's my instinct telling me? And I think probably if people are going to take away one thing, a common thread through these podcasts and planning, that always listen to your instincts. You don't necessarily have to follow them, but those first instincts will tell you a lot about a deal, either in planning terms or in terms of the numbers, can never be ignored or underestimated. Never dismiss it out of hand. It's so important. And particularly when you're talking to investors, mm-hmm. it's that first impression. It's like it's the first impression when you go to a planning office and you're presenting a scheme to them. Yeah, totally. You've got to have, you've got to have emotion. You've got to have, be able to deploy the concept with passion because yeah. you, you, you like, you genuinely like the building. You genuinely yeah. like the opportunity within the building, its location, it's these got, you've got to have that because if, if there's a, a sadly a seed of uncertainty and yeah. bits you don't really like that you can't fix, it'll come, it'll kind of come through. And if exactly. you, it doesn't come if through. It'll niggle at you. It'll niggle at you and you'll know it's there, but you might not necessarily be able to articulate it until a bit later. But rest assured, somebody else along this journey will remind you. Of. Oh God. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> But we're all salesmen to a degree as well. Even me. I mean, all lawyers are salesmen. 
I remember sort of years and years ago, I went to a specialist advocacy training course when I was trained to be a barrister. And the barrister, who the QC who was leading the session, said, I hate to break it to you all that you're all salesmen or saleswomen. <laughs> You've never seen the faces drop with such disappointment after they spent thousands of pounds on their legal education and come from Oxbridge, half of them. It's like, oh, I'm going to be told that I'm like a used car salesman. But that's not what he meant. That he, you know, you are, it's the art of persuasion. Mm-hmm. You've got to do it. I've got to do it. Yeah. And that instinct is so important to that art of persuasion yeah. and knowing what constitutes a good case. Yeah, absolutely. Very much so. I, t- I totally agree. Now, I'm glad we segued away from that because I think sure. the listeners will take a lot from that, that it's not just about the numbers and, and trying to sell the, the deal to the Arabs. You know, it's, oh, it's not a common that. thread. It's a common, and you're, it's, you're always checking in on that as well. Not just with yourself, but other the other people you're working with. You'll do the same with Mark. Mark will do the same with you because yeah. you come at it from different perspectives as well. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I suppose we've, you know, we've got to this the latter part of this podcast now. But I'm just thinking, you know, I guess it will go one of two ways. You know, the application it'll be. Um, oh, I was going to before I get to that. I was just going to ask one question. Mm. So, so. This dialogue with the um, the officers, you know, they're feeding back. They're, they're kind of engaging that you can feel the sense of they, they want to try and find a way. Yeah, yeah. I, I take it you can go back and revise drawings. So if they say, look, if you just move that from there to there or move this from here to here, yeah, yeah. You know, you're probably going to get a better chance. So you've, you've always yeah. got the window open, I guess, to be able to submit revised. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, you, you do. But the fundamentals of the application have still got to be agreeable. Yeah. So they've got to agree to essentially the numbers. They've got to agree to the principle of change of use. If they are, there are one or two rare exceptions, but generally speaking, if they're in a position whereby they cannot agree to changes to the scheme in a way that would change the red line or the description of the property on the uh, application form, and there are legal rules around this and mm-hmm. why they have to do it, but um, then generally speaking, as a matter of practice, the local authority officers will see it as such a fundamental and substantial change that it requires a wholly new application, mm-hmm. not a minor material variation. Yeah, okay. Even with minor material variations, they might need to still go out to public consultation for, say, another two weeks or something like that. Yeah. Um, the other thing about it is um, don't get – so if they're going to – if they want changes to the scheme, don't get so locked into how the scheme looks and they've got to deliver this or something like this that you're not prepared to be flexible. So they might want to shrink it quite a bit. Yeah. Or, for instance, you might have a proposed dig-out at the back which opens up a great patio at lower ground floor level, but there's a steep terrace. Um, that it's that that an embankment that that new ter- that new patio at lower ground floor level is facing up to the garden, yep. and the officers might not like that from a character point of view. Doesn't fit in with the character of the area, so yep. they might say well, you can't have that. And so, often some some developers might say, "Oh my God, so I'm going to be using losing units or floor space." So, yes, but also you're going to be saving yourself building costs. Yeah, absolutely. So you always look at the other side of it, and can we make this work? Because it's always better, unless, of course, it makes the numbers a complete disaster, and therefore you either refuse or get, get a refusal and then go for an appeal. Yep. 
Um, or you say, you know what, well, at the end of the day, bagging and consent, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't necessarily work for me at this time, is always better than not having a consent. Yeah. Because then it gives it, it'll always lift the value to some degree. And then it gives you options. You can either refinance and then try and work with them on variations that then lift you up to a position of viability. Yeah. Or you might decide, you know what, I'll cut my losses, but at least I can stick this in an auction with a value that um a local builder might do, might be fine with. They might not necessarily uh have the build costs. Uh, that I do as well. They might not necessarily need the finance. They might be a cash buyer and a local builder, in which case it's the, the things are a whole lot cheaper for them. Or they might just need to commit resources in their teams, their contractor teams, to keep people busy between sites, say, from a working point of view as well. So there are all sorts of reasons why somebody else might want it, yeah. and then you, know, you, you cut your losses. So um, there's also those that... That is a main point. That is a really important point when it comes to what may happen with officers during the application and then wanting changes. How does that work? How does that delay things? Uh, there can be a bit of toing and fro, but also it's not a complete unmitigated disaster if they want quite substantial changes. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I suppose this leads into the finish line. So it's either approved or it's declined. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose there is a choice um, just leading up to that final determination whether you could, and correct me if I'm wrong, you could withdraw the application uh-huh. because uh-huh. I, I suppose there is a there is an argument to say that if it is declined, it becomes a point of record on the history of that property. You know, yeah. you, will, you will see that. You know, anybody will. Yeah. See that. So uh-huh. that's just a thought and a. a it's a consideration there, really, around the application. But, um, but yeah, I mean, let, let's be positive. So it's been approved. And um, is there a particular time scale that, um, you know, how how long have you got to start the works? Is there a limitation? These sorts of things. You know, well, we- it's, um, it's the converse to something that's been granted for a pure change of use with no external works, yep. um, as it is for something that's... Um, that approves building works, whether or not it includes a change of use. So if you've got a, um, let's say a, it's um, a proposed change of use, but the, uh, it also includes an extension to the building. Uh, And that extension might include, for instance, removing railings um, from the existing property as shown on the, between existing approved plans or might be involved digging a trench if it's sort of a ground floor extension uh, and that sort of thing. So there are various uh, things that are called material operations, material which constitute a material start to the development. And whether or not your proposal includes a change of use, if it includes building works such as those, for example, then all you have to do is start those works within three years of the consent. But they that start will not count unless you've discharged all your pre-commencement conditions from the consent first. Yep. So the first thing you do is when you get the consent through, and you should know which these conditions are because the council's got to come to you and, and ask for permission that they should be pre-commencement conditions first. 
So they will have flagged these up, but you've got to get these discharged beforehand. Yeah. Once they are discharged and you've got three years to do that material yeah. start, it's yeah. different with a change of use, and you've got to watch out for this, for instance, with MA applications. Mm -hmm. If it's pure change of use, then you've got to you've got three years in order to change the use of the property. Yeah. And that means all of the units. Yeah. So you can't say, well, I've done 60% of them or 55% of them, and therefore all the others are saved. Mm. No, all the others are still at risk. Yeah. And then, you know, you're going to have to talk with your planning consultant, perhaps your insurers about it, or maybe it's mm -hmm. best not to have a word with your insurers because um, once you've flagged up the risk, then the premium's going to go up through the roof if you want to insure it. So you um, you might think, well, actually, it's better off to uh, take the risk of moving people in into the ones that are not yet completed. But effectively, you've it, um, the change of use, to get to a point of change of use, they have to be um, a planning unit or dwelling has to be ready for usable occupation. That's the legal test. Ready for usable occupation. It doesn't have to be occupied. Yep. Um, it just has. And it, so we're talking about past practical completion, mm -hmm. certainly past first and second fixings, probably furnishings are in there, the cooker's working, yep. the lights are working. Bathrooms working, you can flush the toilet, you can have a shower, that sort of stuff as well. Yep. So all the basic amenities are live. Absolutely. And then there could be other things that need to be considered, you know, if you're starting a site, but maybe just want to start it to prolong or open yes. up planning yeah. duration. Just be careful of maybe local authority charges that could yep. be due as yep. a result. Absolutely. Because uh, the moment you commence, if you haven't serve your SIL commencement form. If, you know, you've got to pay community infrastructure levy, then you could open up yourself to uh, to penalties and surcharges. And also you'll lose the right to delay payment um, or the first payment for 60 days. Yeah, exactly right. And maybe on the latter part of that, how you're describing the, the usable space, um, again, how does that work in relation to the trigger of uh, council tax? Mm. Because yeah. you see, so you've just got to be mindful. You've got to be kind of watching everything. Absolutely. And yeah. By doing something, the effect, the consequential effect on on something else. But yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that's great. Um, David, that was that was excellent. Thank you very much. Um, okay. I mean, we um, episode three, which is coming. Um, the the subject matter will will be why do I need planning permission, David? You know, and we're gonna we're gonna spend an hour talking about that, and that will be disappearing down some wonderful little rabbit holes, I'm sure, which will be great yeah. um, and great for the listeners to to hear. So, yeah. So, on behalf of myself and David, thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you on episode three. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you would like more inspiration, why not join our Facebook group, Property Developers and Investors, or visit our website, www.equaacademy.co.uk.